The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. ourselves where that journey takes us, towards the future and enlightenment, or towards oblivion and death, and is that choice even one we are able to make? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and thing, and you're listening to Cinema Limbo. Tonight's film is the 2003 experimental drama Jerry, directed by Gus Van Sant, who co-writes with his actors Casey Affleck and Matt Damon. My guest is Chris Arnsby, and you join us in his frozen December study. Hello, Chris. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good. So how do you think the hike's going so far? I think it's okay. Um, I'm a bit worried about the lack of preparations and the weather. But apart from that, you know, things are ticking over nicely. Nobody's died yet. No. Well, we've hardly seen anybody so far. No. Um... There was that family that walked past while one of us was having a slash. Yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> um, had you heard of Jerry before? No, not at all. Right. Had you heard of Gus Van... Well, have <laughs> you heard of Gus Van Sant? Yes, I have. Okay. But only in a very specific context, which is... Am I right in thinking he's the director of the shot-for-shot remake of Psycho? Yes. Yeah, there you go. That was it. That was pretty much my Gus Van Sant knowledge. Well, he also directed Goodwill Hunting... Oh, of course he did, didn't he? Yeah. And um, My Own Private Idaho. Yeah, yeah. Um, he was very much sort of the, the lead indie guy mm. of the 90s. I think that's mainly... I mean, now that you've thrown a few titles at me, it's coming back. But yes, and I certainly remember him being Mr. Independent Film. Mm. Yeah. Huh? I think that the, the, you mentioned the remake of Psycho. I think that is an indicator of the sort of thing that he would then move towards because it's using the resources of a mainstream movie to be extremely experimental. Okay. He said at the time that the reason he remade Psycho, in particular he remade it shot for shot, was so no one else would do it. Because there was that whole spate, and it continues now, of remaking classic yes. horror movies. <laughs> if sooner or later someone was going to remake Psycho. So he took the initiative and he did it, but he did it exactly the same as the original. I, I'm not sure. I, I don't know. I mean, who am I to doubt a legitimate Hollywood director? But I've got to admit, at the time, I it seemed like such a bizarre idea. I thought that the twist was going to be that halfway through the film, something radically different was going to happen. Like, they'd get to the shower scene and Janet Lee would survive or something like that. Um, so it just always seemed like... Well, it a, wasn't Janet Lee to begin no, with. No, I know, but yeah. And that's, that's, the movie has a very good cast... Um, Anna Hesh is, you know, is sort of the, gets the and but she's probably the least well known member of the cast because it's Julianne Moore, Viggo Mortensen mm. Vince Vaughan and William H. Macy well, I think that was the surprise at the time was that something that should have been so creative just seemed to be so derivative it, I just remember it being questioned a lot as to why it was being done at the time well if you're remaking all these old horror movies yeah. this is the logical end point and I, I think and the fact that it still stands on its own and it works as a movie in its own right mm. when divorced from its own origins. So you can make this as a, as a, you know, a, a mid-budget adult thriller with big stars and yet it's also an experimental movie at the same time. I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? It's weird to think of an identical shot-for-shot remake being experimental, but in a weird sort of way it is, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. and it treats Psycho, I think, as... Like one of the great texts, mm. the way you think of Shakespeare plays being restaged over and over again in different ways and different contexts. And you never hear that being thought of with regard to films. No, you that's could, true. You could 
I mean, you could do like you would do Psycho in the Old West. You could do mm. Psycho in Elizabethan times, and you could tell the story over and over again, all these different ways and different contexts, and it would still work. Yeah, that's a, that's an intriguing idea. Years ago, when I was doing English GCSE, we we got shown a film called Joe Macbeth. Oh yeah, which was uh, Macbeth, but done in thirties gangster style. I I remember quite liking it, but uh, yeah, the idea of doing all these different versions, as you say, a, a version of Psycho set in Athens or something. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's got a certain appeal to it. It, I think, broadens the scope of what the significance of movies is. Mm. So the level of art to which they can aspire. Yeah. When you come to something like Jerry, which is pushing cinema to see how far can we go? Mm. What can we do that's completely beyond what one would consider to be cinematic and yet is deeply cinematic at the same time mm. so you have two well one big star one lesser known yeah. but now quite well known actor you have a successful and I think multi Oscar nominated director you have some beautiful locations and you don't really have very much else no I was kind of wondering what we were going to talk about um, so you you, you knew nothing of the film no what did you make of it I really liked it. Much to my surprise, I really liked it. I thought it was going to be incredibly boring um, because for, for quite long stretches of time, nothing happens. But nothing happens in quite an interesting way or in a way that makes you think that something interesting might be about to happen. Yeah, I was, was really taken by surprise by it. I thought it was going to be a struggle um, and it wasn't remotely. It's, it's quite surprising how engaging it is. Mm. It is literally two men wandering around the desert for an hour and a half. But surprising as well, there's at least two places where it got... It, it's it's surprisingly funny. It got two good laughs out of me, which is more than Ishtar did, which is a, <laughs> a comparable story of two lost men wandering around well, yes. in a desert. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, funny. What, uh, what were the big laughs? The bit where they agree to split up, and he one of them, I think... Um, Matt Damon says, oh, I'll go down there, and Casey Affleck says, oh, I'll go up here. And then they meet up again, and Matt Damon sort of walks up to this enormous walk and says, how did you get up here? And he goes, I don't know, I just sort of scrambled. And it's just standing on this boulder that's the height of a house, um, with no obvious way up. <laughs> and then there's another bit as well where they find animal tracks, and they have this... In, they have this stupid little speech about we need do we follow it this way to the water or do we follow it this way to the mating grounds and blah 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 and then they say we sort of we go this way cut to them walking across sand dunes and he says <laughs> just going from bad to worse and but yeah genuinely it was just that kind of um, mismatch cut where it cuts from one thing to another and the, the sort of the juxtaposition of the two was was genuinely funny. The Gilligan cut. Yeah, yeah, in a way it was. Says, oh, you're yeah. never, never going to get me on that bike. Cut to him on the bike. Mm. The, the pace of the film is extremely slow. Yes. Uh, in both story and editing, it has, as it's been noticed, an average shot length of about a minute, mm. which is pretty much unheard of in English language cinema. And there's some of them that go on considerably longer than that. The... The sunrise shot mm. runs for seven and a half minutes and it's just two men walking slowly across a salt flat yeah. at dawn with no dialogue. And yet it's mesmerising. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's occasions even when the two leads sort of walk out of frame and the shot carries on. Mm. There's one particular shot where they're, both of them are in, in profile to the camera the background is completely out of focus, so you can't see any background. It's literally it's just their two heads sort of moving backwards and forwards. And then they move on, and the camera's just kind of left looking at this blurry background, and it, again, lingers on the blurry background for considerably longer than you might think would work. But it works. Yes. The movie starts... Abruptly would be the wrong word, but... I don't think it has any it has no, titles, It has no opening it? titles of any kind. Yeah. It starts on a blue screen and then we have gradually several shots of them travelling when I say several shots this takes several minutes mm. to unfold uh, travelling in an old beaten up Mercedes Benz to a car park in the middle of nowhere 
and you get the sense of a journey. Yeah, yeah. It's obviously the end of a long journey because they're both sitting in the car. They they're not talking. They're not really even making eye contact. So no. yeah, you kind of get the impression it's wherever they've come from. They've come a long way, and they're just they're going to look at a thing, and yes. that's it, isn't it? <laughs> the things over here. There is a marked path mm. to something. Yes. Um, from which they decide to depart and rough it a bit more, and they immediately get lost. Yeah, and I think it's what's interesting. There's a Stephen King story called "The Girl Who Loved Tom Gordon," which is set in Maine. Unsurprisingly, it's a Stephen oh, King Cal- story. Yeah, but it's about a young girl goes off to walk a stretch of the Appalachian Trail with her mother and her brother, and she takes half a dozen steps off the trail, gets lost, and the rest of the book is just about her getting progressively more and more lost and that was just interesting and living in the UK I'm not used to the idea that you can pop outside and just get lost and no. die <laughs> there's um, there's a, the film Dog Soldiers um, the, the werewolf movie oh yes of course yeah, yeah. there's a line in that movie or there's a, some sort of caption on screen that says you know 100 miles from the nearest town mm. there is nowhere in Britain that is 100 miles from the nearest town no you're 20 miles away at most yeah, and that's I find that fascinating about America. That yes, there's just places you can just go. There's just there's just nothing. Yeah. A large part of the film is actually shot outside the U.S. Oh, uh, really? In Argentina. Okay. Because it had the right kind of uh, landscapes they were looking for, but it was also shot in Utah, oh, the right. salt of course, and Death Valley, mm. which is the most inhospitable place on the face of the earth. Yes. I've been there, obviously. Yeah, I've, I've got to say I've been there as well. Um, I quite liked it. <laughs> <laughs> you liked it there? It's nice. What, was, uh, it, was, what was it about that hell on earth that you found so appealing? If you like rocks, it's quite a good place for going and looking at rocks. I'll just stay home and look at the pictures. Well, there is that, yeah. But it's, it's one of those places that you go and you, know, you pass a sign for a place called, I think, Funeral Point, and then you pass a sign for a place called Furnace Creek, and then you pass a sign for a place called Badwater, and it's like, it has a lot of history around here, and it's not, <laughs> not the good kind of history. It's when the road signs are made with bones. Yes, yeah, worry. yeah. Um, in some readings of the film, it suggested that the, the two Jerrys, the two characters who each call each other Jerry, um, are city types who are unprepared for the inhospitable nature mm. of, the, of this environment that they're in because they have no supplies they have no water they have no other clothes that, that which they're wearing and they just go wandering off and they assume they'll be fine as one yeah. as, uh, as the Affleck Jerry says Jerry Affleck let's call it yeah yeah um, oh, all roads lead to the thing yeah no matter where we go we'll, we'll get where we're going and it's this ridiculous overconfidence that immediately gets them in trouble hmm it's just it, it is fascinating to have a film where you have no. Well, in the end, you don't even know the characters' names, do you? Because at one point, I thought, okay, Casey Affleck is Joey, and then Matt Damon starts talking as if his he's he starts talking about having Joeyed something up, and you think, yeah. okay, so you're Joey, and. Well, as far as we know, they're both called Jerry. They might be. But yeah. they also use the word Jerry as a verb, as a verb yeah. to mean to screw up, and apparently that's something that. Damon and the Affleck brothers did from okay. their Boston days. That was just a bit of slang that uh, had been picked up by hmm. Gus Van Sant when he was putting the script together. The script was written by, it was an outline by Van Sant, and then the dialogue was improvised by Damon and Affleck hmm. in cooperation with Van Sant. So it makes it feel very loose and very natural. Yeah, yeah. Which I think contrasts with the very formal nature of how it's filmed, that you then have these very l- loose performances almost as though they're two sort of normal yeah. ordinary meathead guys who've accidentally wandered into an art house film well, I mean that's, but that's kind of what's so intriguing about it is none of it's put together in a way that you'd expect and I keep coming back to this thing that it, it, it's, it's a lot funnier than you'd expect the sequence when Casey Affleck is on top of the giant rock and he's talking about jumping off <laughs> and Matt Damon's like oh I'll just Push some dust here. A dust um, uh, was it dirt dirt mattress. A dirt mattress. All, they come up with all these phrases and 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 um, slang terms all yeah. the way through the movie. 
And he's really just putting together a pile of dust but, yeah. for him to land on. And then he goes and funnels, he piles some dust in his jumper and paws and makes a little heap that's indistinguishable from all the others. And they're going, oh, how does that? Yeah, that looks. And then they actually jumps off the top. I spent most of this film expecting the next shot to be a pile of bleached bones. <laughs> <laughs> um, and particularly in that case, that's one of the most... I, I think that might be one of the most frightening stunts I've ever seen anyone do. I think there is a certain amount of uh, digital trickery there. Okay, I wouldn't be surprised. Because it looks like there's been an edit. Yeah, possibly. I think maybe um, a crash mat or mm. something like that has been um, masked out and the whole thing's been cut together yeah. quite neatly. But yeah, it's just the sight of him jumping from so far up yeah. onto, onto just, just the ground. Um, is worrying. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, and it, it made me wince. And, and I think the first time, when I realised he was actually just going to jump, rather than, say, scrambling back down, or here's a tip for you if you find yourself in the same situation, hang over the edge of the rock, because then at least the drop is six feet less than it would have been otherwise. Well, exactly, yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I think the first time I realised it was coming, I shut my eyes and flinched, and actually had to go back and watch it again, because... <laughs> Yeah, just aghast at the sort of the horror that's unfolding. Because there is this horrible sinking horror as you realise that these two have got no idea what they've let themselves in for. And there's a scene about two-thirds of the way through, isn't there, where they're kind of sketching a map in the dirt and going, well, we walked east and then we walked north. And I'm just at that point, I'm watching it going, too little, too late. They have no idea what direction no. they're going in. no. And the film itself has a weirdly timeless thing because at one point it gets dark and they build a fire and then you just kind of lose track of is it day, is it night? Is it, Well, obviously it's not night because you can see. But you know what I mean? What day is it? How long have they been out there? Well, one thing that Van Sant was trying to do is to give the illusion of real time. Mm. Um, unlike other films like um, Rope or Nick of Time, which genuinely are set in real time but are edited more yes, conventionally, yes. This uses time-lapse photography yeah. to show the passing of time. And like when we have the, um, the dawn sequence at the end, so we have the transition from night to day. So we have a, yeah. a feeling of continuous time and continuous progression that we have days compressed into mm. an hour and 40 minutes or so. Yes, I mean, that. I know we're kind of jumping all over the place, but in a way that's sort of what, Again, pretty much what the film does. Well, and also it's... Not much to the plot. I mean, that's the, no. thing that, that's the thing that's so brilliant to it. There's very little actually happens, mm. and yet it's engaging all the way through. Yeah, because of these little quirky things that happen, or the way they relate to their environment, or just the beauty of the photography. Yes, it's, yeah. it's an incredibly beautiful film. These incredibly stark, inhospitable, mm. cruel landscapes that look beautiful. Yeah. Well, the white salt pan yeah. at the end that they're walking across yeah. is, just looks amazing. I mean, you wouldn't want to go there, but because <laughs> <laughs> you, you die. Yes, that's the whole point. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a I'm a city mouse. I know, I know that if I went to the desert, I would be dead in under an yeah. hour. Well, there is <laughs> these scorpions keep biting me. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's basically scorpions just... don't bite; they sting. Well, there you go. You see, I'm I'm woefully unprepared. Snakes for... bite. Okay. Other ones you have to worry about. Well, yes, that's true. Um, another idea that I've seen suggested is that in a symbolic sense, the thing is mainstream cinema itself. And that there are these two meathead characters looking to be in like a normal film, but then they wander off further and further into this more and more featureless landscape until the end they're just walking across a white surface. <laughs> and they're just in, yeah. in a void that's off the edge of existence itself. I guess I can, I can see I mean it's, it's as valid an interpretation as any um, I quite like the idea actually there's something vaguely Warner Brothers it's like Bugs Bunny turning oh, up in the wrong film it's or... like, like uh, Duck Amuck yes that's the, the one yeah. uh, the, the Daffy Duck short where he starts arguing with the animator yes yeah and yeah then they run out of the edge of the front yeah I, 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 I quite like it I think maybe that's what Gus Van Sant I, as I say I just sat there and sort of watched the scenery go past with this vague growing sense of horror as you realise that this is not but also kind of wondering are they both just going to die or are they going to get out of it um, 
And also that vague awareness as well that if they do get out of it, that's going to somehow be disappointing because it's going to feel like a cop-out. And actually, the, the resolution is... I'm not sure how much, how much we want to give away. Oh, yeah, I can give away the <laughs> Yeah, 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 fair enough. Um, for some reason, Matt Damon kills the other guy. And it's never really clear why. I don't... Well, they've effectively collapsed and they're dying mm. of dehydration. And Jerry Affleck says, I'm leaving. Yeah, and reaches out to Jerry Damon, and Jerry Damon rolls over onto him and strangles him. Yeah, but when he gets up and squints towards the distance, he can see cars moving. Yes, because they are in fact only a couple of hundred yards from the nearest road. Mm. It takes the edge off the implausibility that they've been wandering around near a main road, and, and actually manages to make it a little bit more ironic in a way. Yeah, <laughs> and the the final scene is of. Damon sitting in the back of a car, having hitched a lift in some way, with a young boy looking at him, and the the driver, mm. who's presumably the boy's father, looking at Damon a- apprehensively in the rearview mirror. Yeah, yeah. Again, in terms of that, it's not quite a Twilight Zone ending, is it? Where you know somebody wants to spend all the time reading, and then oh no, they've broken their glasses, and there's been a nuclear war, so they can't get new glasses. Um, <laughs> There's been a nuclear war and now Donald and Ageson's been shot. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, but there isn't, it's not quite Twilight Zone levels of irony, but there is that thing of, of sitting up and realising that you're, you're dying of dehydration 300 metres away from where people are, are driving around quite happily. Mm. Um, and again, that's a very, very nice image as well, um, because it's shot through a very long lens, and so the cars are all... Just on a heat haze, yeah, yeah. like mirages almost. Yes, yeah. Uh, th- there is actually one very odd sequence, isn't there, where the two Jerry's are having a conversation with each other and there's a third person in the distance. But because they're both kind of beaten down by what's going on at this point, they're both looking down at the ground and they don't realise that there's another person walking towards them. And then the person walking towards them turns out to be Matt Damon. And I assume that the whole conversation that took place was just in Casey Affleck's head then. It does raise the question of, are there actually two people there? Well, yeah, that's true. Oh, no, now I'm all confused. (laughs) So, is there just one person wandering around in the desert? That would work if it was Matt Damon that was sitting there having the conversation, because at the end, he's the one that kills... It wouldn't... Maybe that's like a maybe it's a Jacob's ladder. Well, yeah, that's and, uh, <laughs> that's his dying dream. Possibly. Well, I, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised to put anything uh, beyond because the, the, this is such a Spartan film that you can pretty much lay any interpretation you want to on it. That's why I like it. It's mm. it's saying here's the, it's the director of Goodwill Hunting and the star of Goodwill Hunting, and here's this new movie. And it's, okay, come come and see it. And I said, right, okay, here you go. And I, you're going to have to work now. <laughs> and I assumed all the way through it that this was, as we said, when Gus Van Sant was sort of king of the indies in the early 90s and before Matt Damon and Ben Affleck obviously went off to become famous with Goodwill Hunting, I assumed this was an early 90s film. So I'm sitting there all the way through it uh, and genuinely surprised at the end to get to it and go, see the copyright date's 2001. Yeah. And it's actually considerably more recent than I was expecting. It's actually made pretty much after everybody had become very, very famous. Uh, well, I would say Casey Affleck was still oh, very right, much yeah. a support player, but I think this was um, uh, Matt Damon's first film after The Born Identity. Yeah. So, I mean, in, in one sense, it's like, well, I'm a big star now. I can afford to do these tiny little movies that pay nothing mm. because, you know, I'm getting handed lots of money to play a spy. Yes, yeah. What did you think of the use of music? Yeah, again, it's very, very Spartan, the use of music. And it's a weird sort of mixture, isn't it, between instrumentals and sort of electronica at times. Because there's a couple of shots of... Is it some of the shots of sort of speeded up clouds and things where it's just this vaguely... I don't know enough about electronic oh. music to uh, vaguely craft work. Cause that's it's the vaguely only... music, sort of music concrete. Yes, that's but the it's... for it. There's an ambiguity over whether it's diegetic or non-diegetic, mm. whether or not it's sound that's occurring within the scene, or if it's just yeah. 
abstract atmospheric music. There's certainly the the long the sort of the dawn sequence at the end where they're walking over the salt pan and there's this weird dull thudding rhythm and it might be ambient music it might be kind of the sound of somebody's heartbeat in their ears it's really very very hard to tell what it, it might, is at times it could be the character's auditory hallucinations yeah yeah it could just be the sound of their f- yeah it's it's not quite in time with their fate so it's obviously not meant to be them walking but yeah it's uh and then you've got sort of two pieces of almost classical music at the start haven't you piano yes. pieces spiegel im spiegel or Mirror in the Mirror by Arvon Part, with a very simple piano-violin piece, Mm. um, which has been used an awful lot in... Because it it has this very sort of almost spiritual emptiness to it. And so it's perfect for this film. Um, But that comes up a number of times, and it's very very powerful, I think. Mm. Oh, yeah, yeah. And because it's used, is that is that the piece of music that's used right at the start as they're driving to see yes. the thing? Um, it, it, it sort of imposes this very mournful mood on the start of the film. Yes. Um, which again, I guess, just allows you to make your own decisions about what is the thing, why are they going to see it, um, what's the relationship of the two, which one of them is called Jerry. <laughs> Everyone is called Jerry. Apparently, yes. One, I did, one note I have written is that um, the perfect person to have created a score for the film would be Brian Eno. Yeah, yeah. Because this is very much an ambient film. I'm trying to remember what, which order we're releasing these in. Um, <laughs> I think, listener, probably we will have had um, Phase 4 by this point. If not, you should go and listen to it because it's great. Um, and we do talk... Uh, I, Anthony and I talked about... Um, Faithful being in some parts an ambient film, that you could watch it in an art gallery, or if you were, say, having a party in your home, people are over drinks or what have you, you could put this on a television mm. with the sound off, and it would just be like a moving painting. Yeah, it's, yeah. Just background images to have. Or you could even, in this case, have the sound on low, so there would be the, the murmur of dialogue and the occasional music or the, the, uh, the electronic sounds. And it seems that. It might fit there better than perhaps in a, a multiplex or something like mm. that. It would be interesting to know. I should go and look up like, re- readers' reviews on Rotten Tomatoes or something just to see what people <laughs> think of it. And of course, um, Psycho has been treated in that way as well. Has it? There was a, uh, uh, an adjusted version of Psycho that was um, retimed so that it runs for exactly 24 hours. Okay. And that's screened in a number of art galleries. Yeah, I can see that making sense. I don't know whether a longer soundtrack would kind of spoil um, Jerry, actually. Because it, it's kind of the film that it doesn't need an ongoing musical score. Well, I, have you listened to much of Brian Eno's ambient music? Not a huge amount. I music. recommend it. It's very beautiful, but it's, it's deliberately designed so that you can listen to it while you're not concentrating okay. on it. And you could be doing other things. Um, so it's perfect to listen to while you're working, for mm. example. Um, and it's just sort of, it's just like a, a presence just somewhere behind you that's perhaps preferable to silence. Yeah. And of course it depends what the filmmaker wanted. Maybe they wanted silence. Well, yes, Maybe yeah. they wanted natural or pseudo-natural sound. But, um, but equ- and maybe Eno was busy doing something else. Well, yeah, yes, quite possibly. <laughs> Putting together another of his fun card games or something. Hmm. They also... The, the two Jerry's use a lot of their own created language, mm. which I thought was interesting. It made me think of um, ch- child talk. Yes, yeah, in a way. Or, or again, it, it's kind of that. It implies a relationship of people that have that have grown up together and have just got their own shared language. Mm. Um, like um, crows nesting. Oh yes, that's it. Um, scout around. Scout, scout about. Yeah, that's it. Um, turbaning up mm. nice to hear that used in a non-racist way yes yeah yeah there's a few aren't there but, and then the whole again the whole conversation they have where they're arguing about whether they should follow the animal footprints one way or the other because I'm, all, I'm trying to remember the logic of it now if they follow the animals to where they're mating then the animals will mate and then get thirsty and then go to the water Yes. Whereas if they go the other way, they can just go straight to the water and then they don't have to worry about putting the animals off from mating. Yes. I mean, 
superficially that makes sense. But it assumes that they know all about animal behaviour. Yeah. Well, it's got that vague kind of... Um, oh, God, I've, I've made a blank in his name now. I know it's not Ray Winston. Who's the nice guy that walks around and talks about mushrooms you can eat and things? It's definitely Ray somebody. Okay, yeah, just look at me like I've gone mad, so it's entirely possible. Man who yeah. talks about mushrooms. Yeah, oh, it's, a, it, it, it's not... Um, oh, Ray Mears. Ray Mears, that's it. Yeah, it's kind of got that very half-remembered Ray Mears thing to it, because the one thing I took away from reading the Stephen King story, the, the girl who loved Tom Gordon, was that basically the way she survives off the Appalachian Trail is she starts following, she follows a stream on the logic that streams will join up with more streams and will flow downhill and will join rivers and sooner or later a river's going to go through a town. And it's and that's what I quite like about the whole conversation about the the animal mating grounds is it's got this very half-remembered thing of they've watched Ray Mears on TV at some point <laughs> and he's definitely said something about animal tracks. They just can't remember what it was. Yeah, it's, it's definitely the, the urbanite trying yeah. to dredge up that nugget of knowledge I mean mm. I'd be exactly the same oh, yeah the yeah. irony is that I know someone who's been trained in survival by Ray Mears personally really <laughs> and she, she's the, the toughest and most resilient person I've ever known right okay. but uh, unfortunately she doesn't live here rats that's a shame she lives in a, a very um, tough inhospitable environment uh, Brighton oh yes yeah um, this film was the first of a trilogy okay <laughs> I mean, I love it when I manage to spring those knowledge bombs <laughs> on you, and the look on your face as you try and. Think, but how could that possibly be true? Like when I told you there was a weekend at Bernie's part two. I, the, yeah, I, which I must say because that just sounds astounding. It's it's not very good. <laughs> oh, um, a related fact: I found out recently that Weekend at Bernie's has the same writer as National Lampoon's European Vacation. Okay. And that even though John Hughes is credited as a co-writer. He didn't know the film was coming out until he saw an advert for it on TV. <laughs> because they just reused some of his unused scenes from uh, the first film. Fair enough, I guess. That's, yeah, uh, it's well, that's Hollywood for you, if it's not cop- you know, it, it, does ex- it does explain why the second one isn't quite as good as the first. Yeah, definitely. Because it doesn't have the magic pen. I assume with Jerry, it's. I'm going to go on a limb and guess it's a thematic trilogy rather it than a It is a thematic trilogy. You don't get further adventures of... Uh, no, of Jerry and his dad in the third film, presumably. What's his name going to be? I would go Indiana or possibly Jerry. It's going to be Jerry, of course it is. It's going to be like also, the end of... Because um, the reason he named his son Jerry is he named him after the dog. Yes. It's going to be like the end of being John Malkovich. It's going to be... Three hours of beautifully shot people going, Jerry, Jerry, Jerry. And then the guy from Parks and Recreation will turn up. And then it uh, cut to a shot of the audience and they're all Matt Damon. <laughs> yes, yeah. It writes itself. <laughs> this, this is a great idea for a movie. Let's, let's, let's start now. <laughs> um, no, it is a thematic trilogy. Um, it's themed around death. Okay, that makes everyone's, sense. Everyone's favourite topic of conversation. And more pointedly... All three films are inspired by true stories. Oh, okay. Jerry is actually based on a real story Ooh. about two friends who went hiking um, in California, not with no um, supplies. They did mm. take some supplies, but it was very little. Um, and eventually they ran out, and when one of them was eventually found, he confessed immediately that he had killed his friend to spare him from dying of dehydration. Oh. There were certain questions raised about whether that was actually why he was killed. Um, but I, I feel there's a good rule of thumb in that it is all too easy to mistake incompetence for enemy action. Oh, it yeah. could be that they really were that stupid. Yeah, I, I, I can speak as somebody that... Um went on holiday to the Grand Canyon and although the Grand Canyon is lovely and terribly scenic it's full of signs that point out that if you start walking down into the Grand Canyon without the proper equipment you will die yeah which is a little bit depressing and it's about the same it was about the same time that the BBC was showing that series 999 with Michael Burke oh so one morning me and my friend set off decided to just walk a little way into the Grand Canyon um and I didn't have the right shoes on, we didn't have any water, oh, and there gosh. was a point about 
45 minutes in where I became convinced that Michael Burke was going to be winched down from a helicopter <laughs> shouting at us for being idiots. And that was the point where we turned back because uh, it also turned out that my friend was having some kind of asthma attack. Oh. Yeah. I was worried for a minute that you were in Mirage. No, no, definitely not. Right. <laughs> Which is probably quite worrying because we're actually in the upstairs of your house. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Who, who opened the door? <laughs> Well, it's the old Goon Show joke of they see a house in the desert and they search it and it turns out the house is a mirage. Oh, and one of them drops down from the sky and says, well, what, how did that happen? Well, I was upstairs. <laughs> um, the other two films, I think, I, think the se- I think the second one, this was the first one, yes. Right. The second one was Elephant. Oh, is that the... Which is inspired by the Columbine High yeah, School yeah. shooting. Uh, and also by Alan Clark's film of the same name, which was about um, IRA executions. Okay. It's a short film that consists solely of IRA and loyalist assassinations. Right. And that... has no actual plot thread aside from that. But it was also Danny Boyle's first film he was producing. Huh. So it um, it draws on that and it draws hmm. on the same style of Jerry and also being non-linear to tell the story of um, two teenage boys plotting and carrying out a mass execution at high school. Okay. That sounds considerably more grim, if I'm being honest. It is. It has one of the most sort of unpleasant hanging endings I've ever seen in a film. Oh, right. That's a way of leaving things unresolved that very cleverly leaves the audience unhappy in a way that sort of cutting away from the scene just as a person is about to sneeze Oh, they actually yeah. sneeze. There's that, that lack of resolution is so it feels very unsatisfying. Yeah, yeah. The third film was Last Days. I'm not sure I've heard of that one. Oh, Last Days. Last Days, yes. Um, is about the, or well, inspired by the last few days in the life of Kurt Cobain. Oh, okay, oh, right. Um, and that was somewhat controversial. Yeah, I can imagine. For many people, that's still an open wound, but I haven't seen it. No. It's it's a very, very odd film in that I feel that I could speak for ages about how great it is without ever actually really having anything much of substance to say. It It's just... It it really snuck up on me, and I was absolutely surprised at how how engaged I was with it. Because in theory, if you if you said, in theory, if you said to me, "Hey, do you fancy watching a non-linear experimental film about two guys who died?" I'd probably pass. Well, it's not non-linear. I suppose no. That's but it <laughs> might as well. Going, no, on. that's true. Well, they what do you want? They don't die at the start, do they? That would just, well, or only, do one, they? only one of them dies. This is true. Yeah. Um, I think one reason why it works well as part of a trilogy about death is that it does feel like they're walking further and further mm. away from the world yes, and yeah. more towards death itself, as if it's almost a purposeful act. Mm. I mean, one could look for more symbolism at the fact that they're driving a Mercedes-Benz and that they go on a death march. Oh, well, we're, whole, yeah, yeah. That whole thing, and that... Um, uh, on Affleck's shirt is what symbol? Uh, I couldn't tell you to be honest. I, I saw it half a dozen times as I was watching the film. He's wearing it all the way through the movie. I know, yeah, yeah. And I remember the T-shirt with a shape on it, but but it, it, it wouldn't necessarily stick in your mind. It's a yellow star. Oh right. Oh, okay. Yeah, that could just be coincidence. That could just be the way that I'm reading it. It's difficult, isn't it? With with something like a yellow star on the shirt, you think nothing like that happens by accident, generally speaking. And there was, a, I remember seeing an interview with, I think the guy that was the art director on Family Plot, which was Hitchcock's last film. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and a car drives into a field and knocks over a vaguely cross-shaped piece of wood, and apparently some film critic then subsequently wrote and there goes Hitchcock's anti-Catholicism again and the art director's grumbling away because it was just two pieces of wood that he'd put 
up and stuck down where the car would drive over it. So it could just be that Casey Affleck turned up with a shirt with a yellow star on it. But there's so little to focus on in terms of the film. You sort of think some decisions they must have. That that, that it's, it seems unlikely that something like that would be accidental. But then again, maybe Affleck and Damon did just turn up in the clothes they were wearing and just start filming. Well, it makes um, it makes sense in terms of the theory that I have mm. that I've raised before, my jigsaw theory, which is films that really engage the audience have gaps that the audience is required yeah. to fill in themselves. They require they add in the extra pieces, and in the case of Jerry, it offers very few pieces. Yes, and yeah. all of them are sky. Yeah, pretty much. And yeah. none of them are corners. <laughs> You're presented with this very spare image and you're left to try and make sense of it yourself mm. they tell a story around the campfire I think it's around the campfire of um, one of them recently watching an episode of uh, Wheel of Fortune oh that's right yes and on the show the contestant was very close to winning had only one letter left to get and it was very obvious that the, cl- the clue was barrel all the way mm-hmm. but the L was missing and they guessed why Barry all the way. So, you know, sometimes you can add in... I don't know what point I'm trying to make, but no, maybe, maybe you, can add, <laughs> you can add in bits yourself, but, but they, that, they might not necessarily fit. But that, I mean, that could... Yes, that's true. And I mean, so that kind of undermines the point I was making. But. No, I, 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 see what, I, I, I see what you mean. But, uh, but that, and then they have a conversation about a computer game that they've just been playing at one point when they sit around the campfire as well, don't they start to, talking about some game he's been playing where it sounded a bit... It wasn't Civilization, but it sounded vaguely like it. Um, I don't think either of them ever have the kind of conversation you might expect about, so this is it, we're definitely going to die. It's it's distraction talk, mm. and it's it's Civilization talk, because they're talking about video games yes, and, yeah. and game shows, and not... Hmm, what... What direction do you think we should go in the morning? In fact, I think there's only there's only one bit, isn't there, where where Casey Affleck starts doesn't really even start crying, but suddenly there's a bit of a hitch in his voice, and Matt Damon says something like, "Stop crying, Jerry," wow. and uh, and that's about as close as they get to ever really acknowledging that they are in a lot of trouble. It's that it's that machismo, mm, it's that yeah, re- refusal to acknowledge that they've made mistakes. Yeah, I mean, and that we had to have that that joke line at the end when they're lying dying of thirst as well oh, that's... How, how do you think the hike's going so far yes yeah yeah that's right and obviously in the context it, it's meant to be a joke but you think well they've been so self-deluded about everything maybe they're not joking yeah. <laughs> maybe it's been the best one of the year wasn't it <laughs> the last time they went up with five of them <laughs> yeah they're the only two who are left yeah exactly there's a, lo- there's a lot I'd kind of but all you can really talk about is kind of the ambience and the atmosphere there's one lovely shot of the desert with clouds racing overhead where the desert sort of just alternates between black and white and it just looks amazing mm. but it's just there it's just a, it's a lovely image what did you think of the um, sequences of the sped up driving I didn't I think that may have been the only time actually that the film tried my patience a bit because I kind of, I got the impression it was trying to be symbolic or that there was some vague meaning to it that I wasn't picking up on. Because it's odd as well, isn't it? There's um, there's one particular bit where suddenly there's like a hand making a thumbs up sign in front of the camera. Um, and it's, 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 it's weird because what you might think of it as being a, a, just a sped up view of the road is kind of disrupted by, well, as I say, a, I don't remember that. Okay. Maybe, maybe it it's very, like, very quick. It sounds like, um, like a like a hitchhiker. No, literally, it's just if the camera's mounted in the back of the car, it's as if it's as if it's shot over the shoulders of um, Casey Affleck and Matt Damon as they're driving to wherever wherever it is they're going, and it's almost as if the characters were messing around in the car in front of the camera and sort of sticking their thumbs up and making shapes in front of the camera. Oh. But apart from that, I didn't really get what... I didn't get that sequence. <laughs> well, neither did I. Oh, OK. I, so I, I, was hoping I wouldn't you, worry. I was hoping you had some great theory that would, would turn the key and unlock the whole film. As a, it, It's a break from 
the naturalism of the rest of the film. I'm not quite sure. The observational. Yeah, time. maybe that's it, yeah. Well, the more time they spend in the desert, the more they do start to become unglued. Mm. We do have that um, mirage with the third figure. Yes, yeah, that's true. So those driving sequences could be a similar extension. I think at one point they do get played almost over a shot of somebody talking as if they're trying to remember something. So it could almost be a kind of a, a representation of a memory or... I don't know. Um, the one shot that that really kind of surprised me came, I think, right at the end of the film when they, when Matt Damon's sitting in the car and you get a very, very long landscape shot of, well, obviously of the landscape going past, but then the camera starts to pan around within, uh, pan around within the car itself. And there's something very odd about having that image of just the landscape disrupted. It was, it was, it, I, I, I struggled to say exactly why it, why it struck me as being strange. There was just something about the way that that the camera moved suddenly turned away from the landscape and turned into the car and then sort of turned to the kid. And I think it's all done as one one unbroken shot. Oh yeah. And it just it just surprised me a little bit because it suddenly it made the film seem. The rest of the film's very impersonal, I guess, is maybe that's... And this seemed... A bit in, more, intimate, more intimate, possibly. As if you were more... As if as if suddenly you were a person in the car and you were just looking around at all the different people that were in there. But then again, sorry, leaping from one thing to another, when they were... Just after Matt Damon has killed Casey Affleck, he stands up and he sees something. I don't think we see what he's seen for quite a long time, do we? No, I didn't no. think so. And he, wa- and he starts walking almost right up to the camera. Um, and that was a very odd, because I genuinely wasn't sure at that point, because the rest of the film has been so kind of, as you say, it's quite objective, I guess. Mm. It was, I wasn't, I really wasn't sure for a moment if he was going to break the, break the fourth wall or something. Um, because I couldn't work out how else this film was going to end at this point. <laughs> but he doesn't. Then it cuts to the other angle and you realise that what he's seen is a, a road embarrassingly close. Mm. I think that overall it's a quite a fascinating piece mm. of work. It's an example of, I think, how the formal style of a film is matched with the content. Because, yeah. because you have this extremely formal, rigid shooting style of having these minute long takes but also it's an environment which is incredibly cold or sort of indifferent yeah um, and it shows I think uh, a way of te- making a film and telling a story that functions on the most minimal level mm. that it's stripped back to the barest essentials yeah. of of filmmaking, you have two actors, you have a location with nothing in it, you have a tiny amount of music, mm. it, and yeah. you, you have a you have a story which is very very thin, but you can still make a film out of it. Yes. You can still make it interesting and engaging. It's almost like a theoretical exercise in its own right, isn't it? Is how much of how the much, material of a film can you strip away and still call you, it a film? Exactly, but. It's something that relies on the talent of the people involved. Yes. Um, as if Van Sant was setting an exercise for himself, because he'd been making increasingly mainstream films like Goodwill Hunting, and then after that, Finding Forrester um, with um, Sean Connery. Okay, I've not heard of that one. It's sort of the inspirational teacher type. Film. Oh, one of those fellows, yeah. And it's, it's kind of something that he did for the money. Um, say, so, well, okay, now, my next movie. What can I do without? Hmm. What 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 do I need to make the movie? Well, I need a, I need some actors. I need a basic idea for a story. I need somewhere to film it. Let's do locations because it's cheaper than a set. But let's have less and less and less and less and less and less. All the music's from stock. Cut it down to the absolute minimum hmm. that you need to make a film. So it's I, I always end up going back to the idea of Christopher Nolan doing a comedy and just saying right, let's just let's recharge the batteries. Let's do something different. So after doing these big movies Frank saying right I'm going to make a film with nothing mm. I'm going to be creative from nothing from the ground up and that's oh, completely changed the trajectory of his career yeah and 
it does, of course, lead to his appearance in uh, Jay and Silent Bob Strike Back. I, is it, I would, I've seen it, but I don't remember him being in it. <laughs> There's a scene on the set of Goodwill Hunting 2 oh, okay. <laughs> where Van Sant appears in a shot and all he does is counting his enormous pile of money. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm glad you liked it. Mm. I, I really, you know, it's quite possible that, that listening to this. I'm struggling to explain exactly why I did like it, and it's a little bit out of my normal preferred cinema field. Um, but yeah, yeah, genuinely a, a, a real surprise. But yeah, absolutely, I Good. really enjoyed it. Well, this is possibly our shortest episode of cinema yet. <laughs> it's still under an hour. Is it? Because there's only so much you can say about about emptiness. Yeah. But um, it's certainly very relaxing whether or not you're paying attention to it and whether or not it's on during your next cocktail party. Thanks to Chris for making time for this recording. Cinema Limbo is now on iTunes with over 40 episodes available, so please download, review and subscribe. Podnose is also on Patreon, so please do make a one-off or regular contribution to help us with our running costs. We're also on Twitter at cinema underscore limbo and in person at j underscore j underscore phillips with two L's. However, until next time, remember... Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Podnose.